When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jess, and we have a bit of a longer episode for you today, so we're going to go ahead and jump straight into it. When we left off with Lola Montez in part one, she had just lost her fiancé to an ill-advised duel and was forced to testify in his murder trial. Brutal. Although we covered enough adventures to last a lifetime in part one, we barely even touched on the period of her life that would make her a legend, one of the most feared, hated, and admired women in all of Europe. That's what we're talking about this week, how Lola Montez became mistress to King Ludwig of Bavaria and ultimately lost him his crown and nearly his head. Now, before we get started, I want to talk briefly about sources. Although this short period is very well documented, even primary sources disagree about what actually happened between Lola and Ludwig. Like Rasputin in later years, Lola was essentially a scapegoat for the political unrest that threatened to throw Bavaria headfirst into a revolution in the 1840s. She didn't exactly help matters. Although some of her conduct was a little suspect and her motives weren't always clear, what is clear is that the tabloids absolutely hated her and made up all kinds of garbage about what she was up to in the palace. Yes, tabloids lie, even about royals. Imagine that. So we're going to take those reports with a giant pinch of salt and a shot of tequila and dive headfirst into Munich. Let's start with Ludwig. Ludwig I of Bavaria was born in 1786. He was named after his famous godfather, who was Louis XVI of France. You may have heard of him. Now, if you're trying to do the math here, Ludwig was only six years old when his godparents were executed in the French Revolution. For little Ludwig, the terror was real in more ways than one. His father became king when Ludwig was 20, and though his own relatively short reign was still years away, he never forgot the very real danger that came with the crown. He couldn't have predicted just how close his own reign would come to mirroring Louis's in its final years. He married Therese, the daughter of the Duke of Saxe Hildburghausen, when he was 24 on October 12th of 1810. Now, I mention that date because, as it happens, the 12th of October 1810 is famous for another reason. It was also the first ever Oktoberfest. It was hosted in Munich to celebrate their wedding, and Munich continues to host the annual festival to this day. Although Oktoberfest is a celebration of Bavarian culture, it's also a beer festival. Eerily appropriate given the fact that the beer riots of 1844 would ultimately contribute to Ludwig losing his position. Now, if you think foreshadowing doesn't happen in real life, you haven't been paying attention. God knows Ludwig wasn't. If it isn't clear by now that fate took a particular interest in the life of Lola Montez, that fact became increasingly apparent in the days following the trial for Dujarrier's murder. 
Once her biggest fan, Alexandre Dumas revised his opinion of Lola, and he began to look at her like there might be something wrong with her after all. It wasn't the first time someone sensed an air of the supernatural surrounding her, and it wouldn't be the last. He predicted that Lola would destroy the life of any man stupid enough to get involved with her. It was a prediction that turned out to be prophecy, and the way he put it, it almost sounded like a curse. Well, Lola had enjoyed her time in Paris, but that time was quickly coming to a close. It wasn't the same without Dujarrier, and she found that her social circles weren't as welcoming as they had been before. In her grief and relative isolation, she began to have visions and eventually found herself seeking the advice of a fortune teller. Lola had always been interested in the occult, so when the fortune teller told her that she would find her destiny in Munich, she took this very seriously. She packed up her things and headed for Bavaria. Okay, so quick geography sidebar here. You might be asking yourself, isn't Bavaria part of Germany? And you're right. Now. See, Bavaria has been around for a very long time. It was part of the Holy Roman Empire for hundreds of years, but it became an independent kingdom at the beginning of the 19th century. Bavaria joined the German Empire in the unification of Germany in 1871, and then it became a German state in 1949. But when Lola arrived in Munich, Bavaria was an independent country, and Ludwig I was on the throne. And Ludwig was... odd. He was a Wittelsbach, part of a German dynasty with branches that had ruled over various European countries for centuries and included three Holy Roman Emperors. To give you some idea, Britain's current House of Windsor is actually descended from them as well. They were powerful and influential, but madness ran in the family. Now, psychiatry obviously wasn't as advanced at the time, so we don't know what kind of mental illness we're talking about, but we do know that at least 20 members of the family were known to be insane. It ran in the family, and it popped up every so often. Ludwig himself was thought to have a touch of that madness, particularly when it came to Lola, but it was actually his grandson, Ludwig II, who came to be known as the Mad King. But our Ludwig wasn't mad, he was just eccentric. By the time he became king in 1825, he was nearly 40 and had spent much of his adult life pursuing his own interests. He loved traveling, he wrote poetry, he was into the occult, and he spent an estimated 30 million marks of his own money on a truly massive art collection. Part of this art collection was his notorious Gallery of Beauties, a collection of 36 portraits of the most beautiful women in Munich, they were all painted by the artist Joseph Styler, and they featured women from all walks of life. Ludwig wasn't a snob. He just liked pretty girls. Some of the women were nobility, some of them were even in his own family, and others were common women that he just passed on the street. It wasn't a sex thing. He wanted to immortalize their unique beauty, and he had the means to do it. They were dressed as noble women, and their portraits were displayed, and continue to be displayed at the palace, and many went on to make good marriages or live otherwise extraordinary lives. For example, Maximilian Borjaga was the daughter of an Italian pawnbroker, and she later married a prominent local physician. Charlotte Van Hein was an actress who became one of Liszt's many mistresses. Regina Daxenberger was the daughter of a local coppersmith who was so beautiful, Ludwig had her officially open a royal ball on the arm of the Duke Maximilian of Bavaria. 
Nanette Kaula was the daughter of a Jewish court agent who later married a successful local banker, and Helen Saddlemeyer was the daughter of a Munich shoemaker. She herself married King Ludwig's personal valet and had 10 children. All the portraits are absolutely stunning, and you've probably actually seen a couple of them yourself without realizing it. We'll go ahead and post some of those on our Instagram later today. And speaking of which, Ludwig's Gallery of Beauties was basically the 1840s equivalent of saving hot girl selfies on your phone, only it cost more, took way longer, and there's nothing low-key about it. They were all about the same size and covered the walls like a shrine, and Ludwig would just sit there for hours, writing awful poetry. These days he'd just have an Instagram, but he'd probably be one of those guys who just follows you to like pictures of your feet. You know the one. Anyway, he liked pretty girls. There's nothing wrong with that. But when Lola Montez arrived in Munich in 1846, this personal preoccupation became the entire country's problem, and Bavaria was never the same again. When Lola got to Munich, she thought she'd be a dancer. She auditioned for the court theater, but was immediately rejected. They knew of her reputation, but more than that, she wasn't actually that good. Entertaining, yeah, but she wasn't polished enough for this prestigious theater. As you can imagine, Lola accepted this rejection with grace. Just kidding. She appealed to the court chamberlain for an audience with the king so she could complain, planning to plead her case in person. The court chamberlain agreed to ask the king if he was willing to meet with her, but before Ludwig agreed, Lola actually pushed past his guards and into his office. How she bandaged this is anyone's guess, but when she arrived before the king, she was disheveled and irritated. She looked up at the king with her huge blue eyes, and one thing was certain. Ludwig was fucked. Lola was obviously beautiful, but she was also funny and bold as brass. She danced for him right there in his office, and apparently treated him to an unusual finale. According to legend, Ludwig asked her if her breasts were real. Classy guy, our Ludwig. Instead of laughing it off or being outraged at the question, Lola grabbed the scissors off of Ludwig's desk, cut open the front of her dress, and said something else to the effect of, well, what do you think? No one knows for sure what happened next. But within days, the king announced to his council that Lola had bewitched him, and he introduced her at court as his best friend. Things moved fast, even for Lola, but as her biographer Edward Fox explained, Lola's beauty, particularly the splendor of her breasts, made madmen everywhere. Although they were no doubt spectacular, Ludwig wasn't actually a physical guy. He was never described as passionate. He wasn't a lover. He was an art collector, and Lola, well, she was a real piece of work. If you can believe it, the evidence that they had a sexual relationship is at best circumstantial, and it is entirely possible that they were, as they said, just really good friends. Well, you can make your own mind up about that. Whatever the case may be, Lola was allowed to dance, but she didn't have to. She was immediately welcomed into royal circles, and the king had a palace built for her at number 19 Barristraus. It was completed in record time, given the fact that Lola was only actually in Bavaria for a year and a half, and she was able to move into her palace, decorate it, and get comfortable. It was the first space that had truly been hers, and certain details show us a side of Lola the tabloids never did. First of all, it was cute. It was full of books and instruments. She herself played guitar, and she liked to embroider and smoke cigars. 
She was still chain-smoking, and only a few years later in America, she would become the first woman known to be photographed with a cigarette. Lola and Ludwig spent as much time together as possible. All they really did was talk, and they talked about everything, art and architecture, literature and politics. They also shared an interest in the occult. Ludwig had been interested in cults and the metaphysical since he was a young man. Everyone knew about it, but they thought it was kind of weird. Lola didn't. If you remember, she herself had had a number of unusual experiences, and she continued to have visions while she was in Munich. If you're at all into spooky stuff, you probably know how difficult it can be to find somebody to talk to about that, and they found that in each other. The king had a confidant who made him laugh, and Lola had finally found a true friend. Ludwig was in love, and he wrote poems about her. Here's one of the better ones. To Lola. Eyes as blue as vaults of heaven, sunlit as the summer air, like the plumage of the raven is thy soft and shining hair. Form divine and every feature framed to set the heart a-whirl, like some wild and woodland creature is my Andalasian girl. Okay, a bit dodgy, yes, <laughs> but Lola appreciated the thought. Her blue eyes had often been remarked upon, with a newspaper editor in Warsaw reporting that they suggested 16 different shades of forget-me-not before he was eventually fired. But not everyone was a fan. The women of Munich hated her. They said she deliberately dressed to ensnare men, and that she had dresses fitted to her naked body to more effectively emphasize her curves. Look, I know it sounds exciting, but we know that this is crap for a couple of reasons. Anybody with bigger breasts knows that going without foundation garments is not the best way to emphasize them unless that dress is structured like a suspension bridge. 1840s dresses needed foundations to give them the right silhouette, but also just to hold them up. That this is still reported as fact is a terrific argument for the importance of basic fashion history. These women were jealous and full of shit. But it was effective. People either loved her or hated her. They imagined she was locked in a bitter rivalry with the queen, when in reality, the queen actually liked her. Rumors began circulating that she was cruel, impatient, and unreasonable. To a point, you know, okay. But when you look at some of these reports in greater detail, they don't actually seem all that bad. For example, there was an incident with a veterinarian who was treating one of her dogs. The dog got sick and wasn't getting better, but the vet was no help at all and told her the dog wouldn't make it. Lola apparently decked the guy, took her dog back home, and nursed him back to health herself. She loved animals, and often she said she liked them better than people. If that's not relatable, I don't know what is. Look, rumors can spread about anybody, but when it came to Lola and Ludwig, what started as catty gossip snowballed into political catastrophe. We're gonna need a little bit of context here. This next part is about politics. I know how much some people love politics, but this is necessary for the rest of the story to make sense. Ludwig's earliest memories were of the French Revolution. It took the heads of his godparents, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, and it proved once and for all that no power is absolute. He couldn't have forgotten that if he wanted to. Throughout Ludwig's life, political upheaval had plagued kingdoms all across Europe. The French Revolution wasn't the end of it. More and more, people were questioning the status quo and dreaming of progressive republics where they weren't subject to the whims of monarchs or the restrictions of the church. 
they'd had it with absolute monarchy. And this was particularly evident in predominantly Catholic countries, where there were more restraints on, well, everything. By the 1840s, tensions had increased so much that cities were literally on fire. In 1847, there were revolutionary demonstrations in Modena, Parma, Florence, and other cities in northern Italy. There were protests and insurrections in Spain, Vienna, Paris, and Ireland. The French Revolution of 1848 had an estimated 10,000 people dead or seriously injured. The Archbishop of Paris was killed, and it saw the abdication of Louis-Philippe, the last king of France. As it happens, Louis-Philippe would not be the only king to abdicate that year, but we'll get there. Although Ludwig himself was actually very progressive, Bavaria was largely controlled by the Ultramontane Party, a very conservative party that believed that the Catholic Church should control everything from policy and education to art and science. Emphasis on education. Most of those appointed to teaching positions, particularly in the universities, were devout Jesuits. Without going too deep into this, the Jesuits were a sect within Catholicism that came out of the Counter-Reformation to fight the threat of the rising Protestant Church, and they tended to do that through teaching, which is good, and things like overseas missions to forcefully convert people in various colonies around the world. That's not good. Anyway, their control over the political scene in Bavaria effectively kept Ludwig from enacting the progressive policies many of his citizens wanted, and they'd been preventing that for years. As Ishbel Ross writes in Lola's biography, the king prided himself on being a man of the people, and he wished them to enjoy the magnificent city he had built for them. He favored music in the streets, good food in every home, superior schools, and a renaissance of the arts. But he had settled for second best. To put up with priests instead of troubadours, bells instead of fairs, and clericalism instead of universal goodwill. Ludwig was 60, and he was tired. He was king, but he couldn't enact the kind of meaningful change he dreamt about. He'd made over Munich in his quest to make it an architectural rival to Florence and had amassed a truly spectacular art collection, but when it came to the well-being of his people, his hands were tied. But what if they weren't? Lola didn't have a lot of patience for rules. There was nothing she hated more than being told what a lady should or should not do, especially when the advice was stupid. She had never truly listened to anyone but her own conscience, and she didn't see why the king should be blocked from making positive changes. She listened to Ludwig's ideas, and she loved them. Until the day she died, she swore that he was a brilliant king and truly dedicated to improving the lives of his people. If enacted, his policies would be universally popular. So what did he have to lose? Well, as it turns out everything. Ludwig's tolerance of the Protestant Church and other religions was seen as a direct threat to the rule of the Catholic Church. Remember, most of the teachers were priests themselves, and they had huge influence over their students. That's going to come up again in a minute. Now, Lola, a self-assured, independent woman with a brilliant mind, dubious reputation, and voracious sexual appetite, embodied everything they stood against. She was a Protestant, which certainly didn't help, but she didn't know her place, and, crucially, she could not be shamed. Now, if you know anything about the church, shame and fear are two of its greatest weapons, and Lola responded to neither. 
As you'll remember from her early experience swimming with vipers, Lola had no fear, and as a less-than-gifted dancer prone to taking off her clothes in public, well, she didn't have any shame either. Lola Montez was their worst nightmare. So what did they do? Well, they called her a witch, obviously. You'd think that by 1840 that one would be played out, but alas. Still, the press took the accusation and ran with it. Lola Montez was a witch, a sorceress. They said the Virgin Mary had been kicked out of Bavaria and replaced with Venus. She was possessed, and she controlled the king through witchcraft, because obviously black magic is the only way to get progressive policies to pass. Do you think we should try it? Anyway, Ludwig was visited by the Archbishop of Munich and Cardinal Breslau, the primate of Poland, not the monkey kind, unfortunately, who warned the king that his involvement with Lola would cost him not only his country, but his soul. Ludwig tried to set them straight and assured them that his relationship with Lola was only platonic. He loved her dearly, but as a close friend and nothing more. At the same time, he made it clear that he was devoted to her heart and soul. He said, This love inspires an ardent friendship, the most high that one could imagine. If you drive me to extremes, you will have my death on your conscience. Intense. Anyway, the archbishop and cardinal left convinced that the king himself was possessed. It was a common conclusion. Dignitaries all across Europe thought the same thing. He had a close female friend that he respected. What could he be but possessed? As for the claim that he wasn't sleeping with her, they didn't believe him. No one did. Everyone assumed that not only was Lola fucking the king, but she must be the best lay in Europe to get given a palace, a title, and so much influence over the political landscape. However, both Lola and the king maintained to their deaths that they'd never had sex. She was assumed to be his mistress, Ludwig had had a few over the years, but according to them, it wasn't a physical relationship. Everyone just assumed it was because, A, she was a famous beauty known to have several high-profile boyfriends over the years, and B, why would a man spend that much time with and give so generously to a woman he wasn't sleeping with? These assumptions tell you more about how women were viewed than what actually went on between Lola and Ludwig. While we may never know if they did have a sexual relationship, it is entirely possible that they didn't. Evidence does actually point that way, in fact. Okay, I know that sounds crazy, but stick with me here, okay? First, there was their age difference. Not that this has stopped people in the past, but Ludwig was nearly 40 years older than Lola, and he had children her age. Although he'd had a few mistresses, it isn't all that clear if he had sex with them either. Above all, Ludwig loved beauty, and he wanted to be surrounded with it at all times. He also loved his wife, and his wife liked Lola. The queen didn't have a problem with their relationship, and on several occasions, she actually facilitated them meeting when Ludwig had had a bad day and needed someone to talk to. There was also a marked difference between how Ludwig treated his family and how he treated Lola. Now, remember, Ludwig was all about the art. He spent his money on art, and he was actually quite frugal when it came to everything else. He and his family ate very basic, cheap food, and he wore clothes until they were full of holes and could no longer be repaired. But when it came to Lola, he spared no expense. She wasn't a partner to him. She was a living, breathing work of art. Besides, there were Lola's other relationships to contend with. With Ludwig's full knowledge and consent, Lola had affairs with his guards and hers. Toward the end of her time in Munich, she had 
five devoted young men keeping her company around the clock, three of which she named after the Musketeers, a cheeky callback to her fling with Dumas. Of course, she could have been sleeping with Ludwig as well, but in this case, I'm inclined to take her word for it. Why would she lie about that? She wasn't ashamed of her relationships and had nothing to gain by pretending their relationship was platonic. No one believed her anyway. Plus, Ludwig was an unusual guy. He was almost pathologically romantic and obsessed with beauty, but it wasn't a sexual thing for him. He just liked art. But of course, of course, everyone assumed that they were sleeping together, because then, as now, no one believed that men and women could just be friends, particularly when the man is rich and the woman is attractive. Again, this assumption tells you more about what's wrong with society. God knows all women must be gold diggers and all men ruled by their baser urges. I hate people. Well, anyway, assuming exactly that, that Lola was in it for the cash, attempts were made to pay her off. They tried to marry her to a nobleman they had chosen for her, and she refused, obviously. Then she was offered the insane sum of a quarter million dollars to dump Ludwig and leave Bavaria forever. For reference, a quarter million dollars at this time would be a little more than eight million dollars today. She said no. It wasn't about the money, and in any case, she was wealthy in her own right. She had arrived in Munich with 100,000 francs, which would be about $700,000 in today's money. It wasn't $8 million, but she was comfortable, and she was happy in Munich. Munich was less happy with her. Within about two months of her arrival, Baron von Peckman, the Munich chief of police, declared her an adventuress who should be banished from the kingdom. He did a thorough report on her complicated and scandalous history, and he presented it to the king. Ludwig wasn't impressed. Instead of banishing Lola, he banished von Peckman. An overreaction? Maybe. But although Ludwig's willingness to fire, demote, or banish anyone who criticized Lola was intended to protect her, it had the opposite effect. Those who might have accepted the relationship as a harmless fling soon regarded Lola and her changeable moods as a real danger. She was so close to the king that he would obviously do anything for her without thinking twice. People in power started to get nervous. But when Ludwig began the process of making Lola a citizen, well, that's when shit really hit the fan. Ludwig's ministers drew up a remonstrance. Think of an intervention in writing, only meaner. It listed everything thought to be wrong with Lola, and it told Ludwig point-blank that he had lost the confidence of his people, who believed themselves to be governed by a foreign woman with a bad reputation. This scathing letter was signed by all of them and leaked to the press, who published it in full and circulated it across Europe. Among other things, the letter said, "'It is not alone the glory and well-being of your majesty's government that is compromised, but the very existence of royalty itself. The ministers threatened to resign en masse if he wouldn't set her aside. The king was obviously disturbed to hear it, but he gave them 24 hours to reconsider. That night, he held a reception at Lola's house, where he declared, I will not give up Lola. I will never give her up. My kingdom for Lola. Well, asking you shall receive, but it's going to take a minute. First, the whole cabinet was dismissed and replaced. If that's not bad enough, some of the people taking the new positions were Protestants. Now you remember that this was a big deal in this place and time. Lola was made a Bavarian citizen and created the Baroness Rosenthal and the Countess of Landsfeld. She was granted an annuity of 25,000 florins a year and feudal rights over more than 2,000 people through the Landsfeld estates. 
The queen even made her a canoness of the Order of St. Teresa. So much for that rivalry, huh? With everything else, Lola was even given her own coat of arms, featuring a lion, a dolphin, a sword, and a rose. We'll put that on our Instagram, too. Over the next year, Lola wielded a kind of power almost unknown to royal mistresses. She was shot at at least twice, and once she was even poisoned. She only survived because they had given her too much and she immediately vomited. Bribes continued, but Lola wouldn't leave. She was in it for the long haul, and she wasn't afraid. In any case, not everyone disliked her. Protestants and progressives saw her as a hero. Ludwig finally felt empowered to act on his political inclinations, and that was a good thing. The balance of power was shifting in Bavaria, but it was shifting toward the people and away from the wealthy ruling classes. In many ways, it was in people's best interest to support it, but they only heard the objections coming from the conservatives in power who didn't want to lose that power. Sound familiar? Anyway. So most of the university professors at that time were conservative and Catholic, and so were their students. When a popular Jesuit philosophy professor started talking about those Ludwig had fired and praising their loyalty to the ultramontane party, Lola understandably saw this as a passive-aggressive attack on the king. The professor was fired. And then the riots started. Fights broke out between student groups who supported Lola and, well, everyone else. A handful of students who supported her took it upon themselves to provide informal security for her, temporarily moving into her house. And then things escalated further. In January of 1848, Joseph von Gores passed away. He was another popular conservative professor, and he used his last words to burn Lola. According to witnesses, the last thing he said before he died was, I die because I cannot live under the rule of that harlot. His students fully believed that he died of a broken heart, and not something like, you know, old age. After his funeral, they marched on Lola's house, threatening to burn it down. Lola was forced to hide in a church for hours until the danger passed. As a result of organized groups of students trying to, you know, murder his girlfriend, Ludwig temporarily closed the University of Munich to let things cool down. It had the opposite effect. Thousands of people gathered outside the palace, demanding the king banish Lola immediately. More surrounded her house, forcing her to barricade herself in. In her autobiography, she said, They came with cannon and guns and swords and the voice of ten thousand devils. They fully intended to burn down her house with her still inside it, but she stood her ground. She couldn't communicate with Ludwig, and she had no idea what was going on at the palace. She attempted to reason with the mob, but her response only made them angrier. She stepped out on her balcony and shouted, Kill me if you must, but it won't help your cause. My blood will never prove that you're right. Although Ludwig agreed to reopen the university, it wasn't enough. He looked out the window and saw, to his horror, a scene very much like his earliest memories of France. They were even singing the Marseillaise. His citizens were calling for a republic, and they were beyond caring how they got it. He was in real and immediate danger, but still he tried to hold out. He said, I will never abandon Lola. She is the most noble of creatures. My crown for Lola. It was only when his minister of the interior stepped in that Ludwig understood what was at stake. The minister told Ludwig in no uncertain terms that if he did not banish Lola, she would be murdered by the mob. So finally, not to protect himself, but to save Lola's life, 
King Ludwig signed a decree that Lola was to leave the country within the hour with a police escort for her protection. Once he signed it, he was never the same. Acutely feeling the limits of his own power, he was overheard saying, I am but the shadow of a king. As for Lola, she couldn't believe it. She never thought Ludwig would do it, and it didn't cross her mind that he was trying to protect her. She wanted to speak with him, but she wasn't allowed anywhere near the palace. In shock, she walked through the angry mob with the poise of an actress and got into the waiting carriage, never to see Munich again. Or did she? According to Lola's autobiography, she returned to the palace days later and snuck in dressed as a man. She had to see Ludwig one last time. She begged Ludwig to abdicate for his own safety, and also because she knew it would break his heart to go back on the reforms he had worked so hard to pass. She was right, and he did exactly that. But it wasn't only the political reforms he was worried about. After Ludwig abdicated, he said, It took me an hour's consideration to resign the crown, but it required two days to separate me from the idea of being protector of the fine arts. Poor Ludwig. Lola's time in Munich was over, but that's not the end of this chapter. There's one more unexpected, supernatural turn. After she saw Ludwig for the final time, he actually had her sent to an unusual friend. Andreas Justinus Kerner was a physician and an exorcist. According to her biography, the king, knowing more than most about her interest in the supernatural, now thought her truly possessed, and both he and Lola had dabbled enough in mysticism for this to have meaning. Frustratingly enough, that's all it says. <laughs> for someone that into the occult to truly believe that Lola was possessed, something must have been going on, but we have no way of knowing what. Local legend said that she was followed by blackbirds. I mean, same. And people still swore up and down that she was a witch. But they would. It doesn't mean there was anything to it. Still, the exorcist took her in and wrote of the experience in a letter to his daughter. He explained, It is vexatious that the king should have sent her to me, but they have told me she is possessed. Before treating her with magic and magnetism, I am trying the hunger cure. I allow her only 13 drops of raspberry water and a quarter of a wafer. That's right. For weeks, they literally starved her. By the time she left, she was so thin that she was unrecognizable. She found her way to Switzerland, her money and her famous figure long gone. But whether they had succeeded in exercising her demons remained to be seen. <sighs> Guys, I can't believe I'm saying this, but there's actually going to be another part to the story. When I started researching this for you, I never thought that it would take more than one episode to cover, let alone months to properly look into. The story is crazy. So I do apologize for the delay on this, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for sticking with us. We have some very interesting things coming up for you over the next couple of weeks, some big interviews with authors and historians over the coming months as well, and I cannot wait to share those with you soon. Thank you, as always, to our very patient patrons on Patreon. The beautiful, the fantastic Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Mary McComb, Janine Meberg, 
Jessica Miller, and Callie Simon. Thanks, guys. If you would like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Or you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dirty Sexy History. You can reach us through the website, DirtySexyHistory.com, where we have six years' worth of history articles to keep you entertained while you're waiting for the next show. Our sources today include Lola's own books, The Arts of Beauty, and the lectures of Lola Montez with a full and complete autobiography of her life compiled by C. Chauncey Burr and Ishbel Ross, The Uncrowned Queen, The Life of Lola Montez. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.